Wish you weren't hearing an ad right now? Want to get the next episode even sooner? Well, after the show, head to watchnebula.com slash truecrimeof. You'll get access to our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping us to make even more amazing content. Just go to watchnebula.com slash truecrimeof. It really helps us out. The time is the roaring 20s. The place, the glamorous downtown streets of Chicago. Gangsters and bootleggers capture most of the headlines and the attention of police. Clubs overflow with the young, the beautiful, and the rebellious. There's too much jazz and never enough gin. But then, a strange and horrible event shakes the city from its euphoria. In fact, the whole world is rocked by a deadly crime spree pulled off by two of the wealthiest and most promising young men in the city. A pair of rich geniuses brutally murder a boy for their own callous amusement and intellectual curiosity. The victim, Bobby Franks, only age 14. News that an innocent boy has been killed in cold blood as part of a twisted experiment sweeps across the country like wildfire. America speculates in a frenzy. What could have driven these two rich gentlemen to murder for fun? Plagued by a dark psychosis that no one detected, the young scholars, prodigies arrogantly explain their heartless plan. The killers? Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Does anyone who kills for a twisted ideology have grounds for anything less than the harshest sentence? That's the question that we have to face in the case of Leopold and Loeb, the genius murderers. We present for your adjudication Young Nathan Leopold, age 19, undeniably a genius. His IQ is in the top 2% of those tested at this time. Though he didn't speak his first words until age 4, he now speaks 15 languages and he has just graduated from the University of Chicago with Phi Beta Kappa honors. He's charming, the envy of younger boys and suitor to a stunning young woman of impeccable breeding. Leopold is dashing and brilliant. He believes the world is his for the taking. And his accomplice, Richard Loeb, age 18 another prodigy. After becoming the youngest graduate from the University of Michigan at the age of 17, Loeb is currently working on his graduate studies at the University of Chicago. Despite his impressive school record, Loeb is not excited by intellectual pursuits. He'd rather be playing tennis or reading detective stories. Like most teenage boys, Loeb loves the puzzle-solving challenge of crime novels, so he reads a lot of books in which the bad guy always gets caught. These two rising stars collide in the early 1920s. Although Leopold and Loeb know each other as children, they become close during their time at the University of Chicago where their genius intellect set them apart from the rest of the student body. They decide to find their own interests and ventures, ones that appeal to their inflated sense of self-worth. Leopold and Loeb have separately been lauded as prodigies since they were toddlers. Together they come to believe that they are truly superior to nearly everyone else. In fact, 99% of society. So when they read the works of German philosopher Nietzsche, they seize upon his idea of the Superman, a transcendent individual who possesses extraordinary and unusual capabilities, which makes them above the laws that bind normal society. This philosophy further warps the minds of our two young scholars. Leopold, entranced by the idea that he and Loeb are so extraordinary that different rules apply to them, urges his friend to adopt the same beliefs, writing, 
A superman is, on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He's not liable for anything he may do. Loeb needs little convincing. The duo sets out to commit a string of crimes, and they get away with all of them. But the criminal scholars decide to push this Nietzschean theory even further. They resolve to aim higher, not arson or battery. No, this time, they plan a murder. One so cold and callous it will become one of the most read and studied legal cases of all time. In short, they set out to commit the perfect crime. One that is, the psychotic buddies believe, they can pull off with complete immunity. In 1929, Leopold and Loeb begin preparations for the killing. A plan that begins with the already heinous crime of kidnapping. Because the two resolve to murder an innocent child, they first must decide how the abduction will take place. Should they take the boy from his bedroom in the middle of the night? Perhaps steal him away from his family while they're out on the town? They then begin contemplating the murder itself. How should we kill him, they ask. Poison? Shooting? Stabbing? They coldly discuss one gruesome idea after another before at last settling on a method. For these evil geniuses, there are still more preparations to make. Another part of their diabolical plan involves typing a ransom note from a fake person and creating a bank account in a false name, into which the victim's family can deposit their ransom money. Dispassionately, they discuss renting a car and typing the ransom demand on a typewriter that Loeb steals from his own fraternity house. The pair plot and complete each villainous step seemingly failing to realize that each one exposes them to more eyewitnesses. The two demented prodigies spend seven months making their murderous plans. At last, on May 21st, 1924, on a warm and cloudless spring day, Leopold and Loeb put their long-plotted gruesome plan into action. First, they lure 14-year-old Bobby Franks, a trusting neighbor, tennis buddy, and second cousin of Loeb's, to the rental car. The charming killers whom Bobby knows and looks up to convince him to come to their car to discuss a new tennis racket that Loeb has been using. They then seize him, bind him, and speed away. The kidnapping has begun. After the madmen have Bobby in the car, the horrific deed moves into full swing. As Leopold drives, Loeb repeatedly hits Bobby in the head with a metal chisel, then drags him into the back seat where the dreadful undertaking continues. In the back seat, Loeb gags young Bobby with his own hands covering Bobby's nose and face until the ill-fated child can no longer breathe and at last suffocates. Now, traveling with their victim's body, the depraved men drive on to their predetermined dumping site, 25 miles south of Chicago in Indiana. For the entire trip, Bobby lies hidden beneath a robe. The brutal murder has no effect on these two monsters. In fact, they grab a bite to eat on their way to dispose of the poor boy's remains. Shockingly, they even eat in the car with a corpse as they drive along. After sundown, they heartlessly strip Bobby of his clothes and drag his lifeless body to a culvert near some railroad tracks. Loeb keeps a lookout while Leopold carefully removes his own coat and shoes, and then dons a pair of boots to take the remains into the sewer canal. To try to prevent Bobby's identification in a grisly act, Leopold pours hydrochloric acid on his face and body. Finally, he covers Bobby with a robe once more. Leopold emerges from the tunnel, confident that his work has been meticulous. 
But unbeknownst to either of the killers, Leopold's glasses are left at the dumping site. Their twisted sense of superiority prevents them from ever considering the possibility of human error. Feeling secure in their grisly endeavors so far, they duck back into their blood-stained rental car and head back to Chicago. But unnoticed by the murderers, eyewitnesses continue to accumulate. On their drive back north, a woman and her daughter are on their way home from a picture show. Since the road is dark, the mother flashes her brights when approaching Leopold and Loeb's car coming from the other direction. The ladies get a clear look at the car passing them. It's around 9.30 p.m. Next, Leopold stops at a drugstore to call his girlfriend in his home, claiming that he's still nearby and out with friends. He tells them he'll be a little later getting back, and in turn, his parents remind him that he must drive his aunt home upon his return. Leopold hopes these conversations will support an alibi, but of course, phone calls are no such proof. Finally, back in Chicago, the nefarious pair begin to dispose of the evidence. They stop at Loeb's home, where Loeb burns Bobby's clothes in the furnace. Meanwhile, in the garage, Leopold attempts to clean Bobby's bloodstains from the rental car's front seat. Thinking the large robe may cause too much smoke in the furnace, the two decide to hide it in the yard and plan to burn it later. Still feeling pleased with the execution of their plan, Loeb stays with Leopold's family at their house while Leopold at last drives his aunt home. But their terrible business on this fateful night is not done yet. At around 10.30 p.m. before returning home, Leopold calls Bobby's parents, pretending to be the man named George Johnson. Bobby's unsuspecting mother answers the call and receives news that throws her life into a living nightmare. Lying, Leopold tells Mrs. Franks that her son Bobby has been kidnapped, but is unharmed, and he orders Mrs. Franks to wait for further instructions regarding the $10,000 ransom. He warns her that she and her husband must strictly follow his directions and that they cannot contact the police. Once Leopold arrives home, he and Loeb settle down to wait and play cards for a while. At around 1 o'clock in the morning, the two leave in the rental car to mail their ransom note, dropping it off for special delivery to the Franks. On the way back to Loeb's house, Loeb tosses the chisel into some brush along the roadside. Leopold drops off Loeb at around 1.40 a.m. and heads back home as their bloody crimes draw to a close. But the Franks' nightmare is far from over. The next day, the ransom demand arrives around noon, which Mrs. Franks can barely open because her hands are shaking so badly. Desperately, the Franks try to understand the letter's instructions. They must wait at their home for another call at 1 o'clock p.m., which will tell them where to leave the money. The letter is signed, George Johnson, and concludes, Remember that this is your only chance to recover your son. But at these very moments, the police are already unraveling Leopold and Loeb's, quote, perfect crime. Their first mistake? The chisel that Loeb threw out into the brush. A man who was watching curiously decided to see what had been tossed from the window of their fancy rental car in the middle of the night. He was shocked to find the bloody chisel, and by 2.30 a.m., that eyewitness has turned the murder weapon over to police. The two self-proclaimed geniuses haven't an inkling that tangible evidence against them is already being collected. Mere hours later, two early morning workmen happen across Bobby's remains, where they also find Leopold's spectacles. They gently remove the boy's body from a culvert and contact police. When the police arrive, they also find one of Bobby Frank's socks. By late morning, Leopold and Loeb are scrubbing the carpet in the rear of the car. Leopold's chauffeur happens upon them, and Leopold clumsily invents a story. They spilled some red wine in the car, and they're cleaning it out so Loeb's father won't see it. This might make sense, but this is not Loeb's car. 
At 2 p.m., an hour after the Franks expect more instructions, Leopold drops off Loeb at the train station where Loeb buys a train ticket in his own name for Michigan City. He quickly boards the car and deposits a letter in the train's telegraph rack. The criminal masterminds hope to trick authorities into believing that Loeb was on the train at the very time the Franks are due to be contacted in Chicago. Meanwhile, Leopold doesn't waste any time. While Loeb is planting the letters on the train, Leopold goes to a drugstore and calls the Franks, instructing them to go to a different drugstore and wait there for another call. Leopold gives the Franks the designated address and hangs up, then hurries back to pick up Loeb from the train station. Once together again, the naive perpetrators go back to the drugstore near the station to call the other drugstore, where they believe the Franks are anxiously waiting. But by now, Bobby's body has already been identified by his uncle and is in the county morgue. Remarkably, just five minutes before Leopold called the Franks, the police arrive to give them the life-shattering news that their poor little boy is dead. Of course, the Franks are not going to any drugstore at this point. Before the day is out, much to the deranged men's chagrin, Bobby's death is already in the newspapers. With Bobby dead, how can they pull off a ransom payday now? In a panic, Loeb urges Leopold to call everything off, but Leopold stubbornly disagrees, racking his brilliant mind for a way to still get the money. But failing to come up with anything, Leopold agrees. The new plan is to plant evidence to make it look like someone else murdered Bobby. Once the two get rid of their rental car, they decide to try to pin the murder on one George Lewis, an ornithology student in one of the zoology classes Leopold teaches. Leopold's genius idea is to frame one of his bird enthusiast students because some of them frequent the part of Indiana where Bobby's remains were found. Leopold doesn't even consider that Lewis may have a rock-solid alibi. How could two geniuses be so bird-brained? The two are acting in a blind panic now, their smug intelligence proving a crumbling facade as the net closes in. Driving with no consideration for the speed limit, Leopold picks up Loeb. They retrieve Bobby's robe from the backyard and drive to a secluded spot. They burn it on the side of the road, out of anyone's sight as far as they know. They then speed to Indiana where they hide Bobby's class pin, belt buckle, and shoes. But before they can finish their cover-up plan, Captain Wolf of the Chicago Police Department calls Leopold in for questioning much to the surprise of the dastardly pair. Though worried about the execution of their frame-up, they still don't know how close the police really are. Captain Wolf asks Leopold about his neighbor, Bobby Franks, and asks where Leopold saw him last. After Wolf tells Leopold about Bobby's grim fate, Leopold offers his flimsy alibi and implicates innocent George Lewis, saying he is known to frequent the site of Indiana where Bobby's body was found. Clearly, Leopold hopes to plant a red herring, but this bird expert has no way of knowing that that fish wouldn't swim. As soon as the captain finishes speaking with Leopold, Leopold rushes back to Loeb. The two immediately drive to a park where Loeb hurriedly twists the keys off the typewriter used to write the ransom note. They throw the keys and the typewriter into a lagoon, but their efforts are in vain. By this point, the police have already been collecting evidence and witnesses against the nefarious duo for the last 10 hours. The most damning evidence? Leopold's forgotten glasses. The police follow one clue after another for six days. Identifying the glasses owner was simple. Mr. Coe, the owner of an eyewear shop, immediately recognizes the glasses as one of a rare design. Coe tells the police only three customers own that set, and one of them is Leopold. By May 28th, the police have spent almost a week tracking down leads, collecting clues, gathering tangible proof, and creating a long list of eyewitnesses. At this point, they decide it's time to hear whatever fantastic story Leopold and Loeb have come up with. The police question the self-proclaimed geniuses separately, 
hoping to get a confession to support the mountain of evidence already in the law's possession. The questions take place at a local hotel in the hopes of making the criminals feel more comfortable and more likely to sing. Leopold continues to offer the police names of other possible suspects. He then gives two conflicting answers about where his spectacles might be. Loeb, on the other hand, tries to claim he doesn't remember what happened, hoping to avoid making any truly damning mistakes. Both give police their flimsy, false alibis. But Leopold is too reckless and even admits, if I were to murder anybody, it would be just such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. The police release the men for the night, but secretly have them followed. Finally, around 1 a.m. on May 30th, Leopold and Loeb are arrested for the murder of Bobby Franks. Once at the station for processing, the police give the two some details about the mountain of evidence stacked against them. Loeb is the first to break and start confessing. And when Leopold finds out, he confesses too. Finally, the Franks are on their way to some justice for their little boy. But it turns out that the path to justice is a truly twisted road. Leopold and Loeb's families hire the most famous lawyer in the world, Clarence Darrow of the Scopes Monkey Trial fame, and they pay him a $70,000 retainer, which was a fortune and would be over a million dollars today. Billed as the trial of the century, this is in every way the predecessor to the O.J. Simpson case. But given the grisly facts of the trial, why would the most famous lawyer in the world take the case? Because he was staunchly against the death penalty. Darrow famously opposed capital punishment throughout his career. But the facts are not in dispute. Two brilliant young minds decided to kill a young boy just to see if they could complete the perfect crime. The killers confessed. Darrow knows that if Leopold and Loeb plead not guilty, they will be convicted by a jury and sentenced to death. Even the greatest lawyer in the world can only do so much. So, Darrow's astute legal mind comes up with a tactic that might, at least, save their twisted lives. Darrow suggests that the pair skip the trial and focus exclusively on sentencing. On the day of the indictment, the town is in a tizzy, and people all over the country want to know how these two calculating child killers will plead. What could they possibly say to defend themselves? Let's go to the courtroom where the opposing lawyers are about to square off, in a courtroom jammed with people, but so silent you could hear a pin drop. Mr. Darrow, how do your clients plead to the counts of kidnapping and first-degree murder? Guilty. <gasps> the courtroom is full of shocked gasps and murmurs, but once it's quiet again, Darrow simply requests a full hearing on sentencing before the court decides on the killer's penalty. The court grants his requests. So, in Illinois, is pleading guilty enough to avoid the death penalty for first-degree murder and kidnapping? The state's attorney, Robert Crow, is certain that this will be a hang-in case. However, there's the Darrow factor, and Darrow is even smarter than the two men he's defending. Darrow is aware that a plea of insanity would be futile. The facts are known, and at this point in his career, the only client that Clarence Darrow ever lost to execution tried the insanity defense and failed miserably. So Darrow takes a different, more audacious route, sending the case into an unbelievable 32-day hearing on sentencing alone. Will Darrow be able to convince the court that life sentences are sufficient? Or will these two sociopaths hang for their terrible crime? Let's see what the Cook County Court decided in September of 1924. We take you to the courthouse where the historic sentencing is about 
to begin. Good morning. I'd like to first express that while this case has attracted a lot of attention in the community at large, I will not allow this courtroom to become a circus. I expect that the counselors and our system of justice will be given the respect they deserve. There shall be no talking unless you are one of the attorneys and it is your turn to address the court. We are here only to resolve the matter of sentencing. Is the state ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor, Robert Crow, for the people of the state of Illinois. Counsel for defendants? Yes, Judge. Clarence Darrow on behalf of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. All right then, let's proceed. Mr. Crow, you may begin. Uh, thank you, and may it please the court. Your Honor, these defendants are nothing less than depraved hypersociopaths who think nothing of human life. If ever a case for the death penalty existed, it is this one. These men admitted that they planned and committed the gruesome murder of a young boy, an innocent child who presented no threat because they thought it would be a fun experiment. They thought it would be fun to commit the perfect crime. Moreover, they both stated that this heinous act was thrilling, and Mr. Leopold has admitted that he had an interest in learning what it would be like to murder a human being. Objection, Your Honor. Counsel is offering evidence not in the record, as there was no trial in which my clients testified under oath. Objection sustained. Be careful, Mr. Crow. Proceed. Are the defendants sick? Yes, but not from any mental illness, but instead a knowingly embraced depravity. I hesitate to even call them men, as true men would never do or even consider such violence toward a poor child. I urge the court to consider, too, the endless anguish in which Bobby's parents will have to live for the rest of their lives. Capital punishment was made for just such a case. Your argument, Mr. Darrow? Your Honor, it has been said that we pled guilty because we are afraid to do anything else. Your Honor, that is true. We seek mercy, but not exoneration. Now, we have said to the public and to this court that neither the parents, nor the friends, nor the attorneys of these boys would want them released. Unfortunate though it may be, it is true. And those the closest to them know perfectly well that they should not be released, and that they should be permanently isolated from society. We are only asking this court to save their lives, which is the least and the most a judge can do. And the key question in this case is not whether my clients did something horrific, but rather whether there were circumstances that mitigate their level of personal responsibility. Despite counsel's attempt to paint Nathan and Richard as inhuman, well, they certainly are not. They are young men whose minds have been and are still being molded by the world around them, as well as by the smaller environment in which they live out every day of their lives. Their parents' homes, their college classes, their sports practices and the like. And these smaller worlds, which are intimate to my clients, must be closely examined before deciding on a fair and just penalty for their crimes. The state may proceed with argument. Over 100 witnesses for the state testified to the countless lies, attempts to implicate innocent people, and path of destruction left behind by these two ghouls. That evidence, combined with the hard, tangible evidence, is enough to warrant death for these two abhorrent defendants. Mr. Darrow, did you want to comment on witness or evidence? Yes, thank you, Judge. As the court has seen, we produced many witnesses for the court including psychiatric experts and those individuals closest to and familiar with the daily lives of Nathan and Richard. 
Their reliable testimony and other evidence has shown that my clients are not deserving of death. Mr. Crow, please advise the court of the state's recommendation for sentencing. The state is recommending death by hanging for both of the defendants. Leopold and Loeb are highly educated, and they were raised by kind and civilized members of society. Therefore, they were well aware that life is valuable and that it is against the law in every state of the Union to murder an innocent person. Furthermore, they soberly planned and brutally executed the murder of an innocent 14-year-old boy, leaving two parents to grieve and profoundly suffer for the rest of their lives. For 20 years, I have had the great privilege to represent the state of Illinois. But in that time, I have never seen a murder as cold-blooded as this. Execution is the only fair and just sentence. Thank you. Mr. Darrow, your position for the record, please. Your Honor, what is the law of Illinois? If one is found guilty of murder in the first degree by a jury, or if he pleads guilty before a court, the court or jury may do one of three things. He may hang, he may imprison for life, or he may imprison for a term of not less than 14 years. Now, why is that the law? Does it follow from the statute that a court is bound to ascertain the impossible and must necessarily measure the degrees of guilt? Not at all. He may not be able to do it. A court may act from any reason or from no reason. A jury may fix any one of these penalties as they separate. The defendants plead for life in prison over the death sentence. Thank you, Mr. Darrow. The state's position is well known. Please proceed with your case for life rather than death. This terrible crime, Judge, was inborn in their very nature, handed down from ancestry. Could any young student be blamed because he took Nietzsche's philosophies seriously and fashioned his life upon them? Is it fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught to him at a prestigious university? Now, Your Honor, we must also talk of the Great War. It has changed the world. For four long years, the civilized world was engaged in killing men by the thousands. Do you suppose this world has ever been the same since? How long will it take for the world to reclaim its humane emotions from an earlier time? We've read of killing 100,000 men in a day. These boys, my clients, were brought up in such an environment. The tales of death were in their homes, their playgrounds, their schools. They learned to place a cheap value on human life. What was life? It was nothing. It was the least sacred thing in existence. And these boys were trained in this cruelty. Mr. Crow, does the state have any evidence to refute Mr. Darrow's point regarding the effects of war on the minds of children and their value of life? Of course. The state offers simple common sense. Look at the thousands of children the same age as the defendants who also lived through the tragic days of war. They haven't killed anyone, and if I'm unaware of one or more who have, then it's still evidence that Mr. Darrow's argument does not hold water. Your Honor knows that in this very court, crimes of violence have increased since the war, not necessarily by those who fought, but by those who learned that blood was cheap and human life was cheap. If the state and our country could take these lives lightly, why not young boys? There are causes for this crime. War is part of it, education is part of it, birth is part of it, money is part of it. All these conspired to encompass the destruction of these two poor boys. Has the court a right to consider anything but these two boys? If the welfare of the community would be benefited by taking these lives, well and good. 
I, however, think it would work a greater evil that no one could measure. All murders have a cause. It never occurs to the lawyer that crime has a cause as certainly as disease, and that the way to rationally treat any abnormal condition is to remove the cause. If a doctor were called on to treat typhoid fever, he would probably try to find out what kind of milk or water the patient drank, and perhaps clean out the well so that no one else could get typhoid from the same source. But if a lawyer were called on to treat a typhoid patient, he would give him 30 days in jail, and then he would think that nobody else would ever dare to take it. If the patient got well in 15 days, he would be kept until his time was up. If the disease was worse at the end of his 30 days, the patient would be released because his time was out. Why did they kill little Bobby Franks? Not for money, not for spite, not for hate. They killed him as they might kill a spider or a fly for the experience. They killed him because they were made that way. Because somewhere in the infinite processes that go into the making up of the boy or the man, something slipped. And those unfortunate lads sit there hated, despised, outcasts, with the community shouting for their blood. Uh, may I respond to Mr. Darrow's last arguments, please? Go ahead. Uh, without getting into specific details, suffice to say, the collection of testimony from over 100 of the state's witnesses is from reliable people whose accounts are all consistent and, most importantly, demonstrated coldness and even enjoyment on the part of the defendants during every step of their planning, execution, and post-murder deceitful actions. These boys, as counsel refers to them, acted like men, men with no remorse for stealing a child from his parents and mutilating him both before and after his dreadful death. Thank you, Mr. Crow. Mr. Darrow, you may continue. I have been sorry, and I'm sorry for the bereavement of Mr. and Mrs. Franks, for all those broken ties that cannot be healed. All I can hope and wish is that some good may come from it all. I do not know how much there is to salvage in these two boys. To spend the balance of their days in prison is mighty little to look forward to. But I know the boys are not fit to be at large. The easy thing and the popular thing to do would be to hang my clients. I know it. The cruel and thoughtless will approve. Be careful, Mr. Darrow. This court does not make decisions based on what's popular. It answers only to the laws on the books. I intend no disrespect, Your Honor. But in Chicago, and reaching over the length and breadth of the land, more and more fathers and mothers, the humane, the kind, the hopeful, will join in no acclaim at the death of my clients. They would ask that the shedding of blood be stopped, and that the normal feelings of men resume their sway. I have a list of executions in Cook County beginning in 1840, which I presume covers the first one, because I asked to have it go to the beginning. Ninety poor, unfortunate men have given up their lives to stop murder in Chicago. Ninety men have been hanged by the neck until dead because of the ancient superstition that in some way hanging one man keeps another from committing a crime. The ancient superstition, I say, because I defy the state to point to a criminologist, scientist, student who has ever said it. Still, we go on as if human contact was not influenced and controlled by natural laws the same as all the rest of the universe is subject of law. We treat crime as if it had no cause. We go on saying, hang the unfortunates and it will end. 
Was there ever a murder without a cause? Was there ever a crime without a cause? And yet all punishment proceeds upon the theory that there is no cause, and that the only way to treat crime is to intimidate everyone into goodness and obedience to law. Now, we lawyers are a long way behind. I am pleading for life, understanding, charity, kindness, and infinite mercy that considers all. I'm pleading that we overcome cruelty with kindness and hatred with love. Your honor stands between us and the future. You may hang them by the neck until they're dead, but in doing so, you would turn your face toward the past. In doing it, you would be making it harder for every other boy who in ignorance and darkness must grope his way through the mazes which only childhood knows. I'm pleading for a time when we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all life is worth saving and that mercy is the highest attribute of man. Your Honor, if in this court a boy of 18 and a boy of 19 should be hanged on a plea of guilty in violation of every precedent of the past, in violation of the policy of the law to take care of the young, in violation of the progress that has been made and the humanity that has been shown in the care of the young, in violation of the law that places boys in reformatories instead of prisons, if Your Honor, in violation of all that and in the face of all the past, should stand here in Chicago alone to hang a boy on a plea of guilty, and we are turning our faces backward towards the barbarism which once possessed the world. If your honor can hang a boy at 18, some other judge can hang him at 17, or 16, or 14. Someday, if there is any such thing as progress in the world, if there is any spirit of humanity that is working in the hearts of men, someday men would look back on this as a barbarous age which deliberately set itself in the way of progress, humanity, and sympathy and committed an unforgivable act. Mr. Crow, tell me how death will better serve society than will life in prison. As you said yourself, Judge, this court must answer to the laws on the books. This case falls squarely under the law which provides for death by hanging. We cannot allow the public to believe that our laws are meaningless, so it's imperative that this court abides by the law to its letter. Furthermore, death by hanging will work as a logical deterrent. Most people who realize that they could be hanged for murder will opt against committing such a heinous crime. Some people may still kill if they know they may only spend part of their life in prison with a strong chance of parole for good behavior. For example, when Leopold and Loeb murdered little Bobby Franks, they breached the social contract that binds us all together. Their lives were forfeit the moment they took Bobby's. Hanging these men may not bring Bobby back, but retributive justice demands that they suffer. And if their deaths prevent the loss of even one innocent life, it will have been worth it. Mr. Darrow, a brief closing, please. We have placed our fate in the hands of this learned court, knowing that it would be more mindful and considerate than a jury. It is my only hope that we may all temper justice with mercy and overcome hatred with love. Thank you. So what are your thoughts? If you were Judge Caverly, what would you decide? Should these brilliant but depraved young men with luxurious but less than ideal childhoods escape the gallows? Put your proposed verdict in the comments. How do you think it came out? 
Clarence Darrow's sentencing argument is the stuff of legal legend. He went on for over 12 hours and 20,000 words. Commentators called it the greatest speech of his career and the most eloquent argument against the death penalty ever given. Judge Caverly handed down his decision on September 10, 1924, as the entire country waited with bated breath. The sentence for the murder and kidnapping convictions of both Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb was an order of life imprisonment plus 99 years. They were spared the gallows. And what happened to Leopold and Loeb themselves? Well, they went to jail for a very long time. Loeb was killed in jail 12 years later by a fellow inmate. Leopold served out the rest of his sentence and was paroled 33 years later in 1958. He eventually moved to Puerto Rico, studied wildlife, and died of a heart attack at the age of 66. Is it fair that they were able to avoid being hanged? Is the death penalty really a deterrent, or is it just a blight on civil society? What do you think? Leave your objections in the comments, and check out this playlist over here where you can see all of the episodes of The Case Of, including my favorite, The Case of the Shotgun Booby Trap. Check out this playlist, and I'll see you in court. Oh, and one last thing. I know right now you're probably fumbling with your phone trying to find the next podcast to listen to, but you can't because this is an ad. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, you can go to watchnebula.com slash truecrimeof. You can get access to all of our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping to support us make even more amazing content. So before you go, check out watchnebula.com slash truecrimeof to support this channel and this podcast directly.